Um, let's turn into 1 Peter if we could. We're going to start off at the, in the first chapter of 1 Peter this morning. So I'll give you a minute to get there. And uh, I'm going to be looking at kind of the opening of, of his first letter. And uh, I'll explain a little bit more about what that'll mean going forward. But uh, it's a neat, neat, uh, neat passage we're going to look at this morning. We're going to focus a lot on encouragement for troubled times. We can be encouraged by our salvation. And uh, Peter offers that to us going forward here. So let's start out in verse 1 of First Peter chapter 1. Starts out, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though, for a, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicated the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. It's amazing, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we are just so thankful to be in your scriptures. And we're so thankful for this opportunity for you to speak through them, Lord. May I just ask, even during this time now, you get me out of the way, Lord, and that you would speak through your word. Lord, that the words that are spoken today would not be of my accord or anybody's, Lord, but they would be your message for your church from your scriptures, the message that you have sent to us. Lord, use, use your scriptures powerfully in us during this next period of time, Lord, just, just to nourish us, to help us to grow. Lord, to edify us, to chastise us where necessary. Lord, we lift these things to you. We ask your Holy Spirit to move in, even in our midst now. We lift these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter's first letter is, is meant to be an encouragement. It, it carries a very warm pastoral tone. Uh, it was written to a whole host of Christians that were scattered about um, in a variety of places. They had been scattered due to persecution. It was designed to be an encouragement to them for troubled times. Each audience he was writing to was facing similar problems. Because they were Christians, the principles that they lived by, the core of their existence, was something that was very much un- misunderstood. They were struggling just because they were believers. And because of that, And because of society's lack of understanding of the the one true God, these believers, whom Peter addresses, 
were subjected to slander, ridicule, and probably far, far worse. They were very much subjected to cruel treatment. They were in a rough place at this point in time. So let's put that in the rear view for a moment and fast forward a couple of millennia. Because in contrast, for the last couple of centuries, as Americans, we have enjoyed unprecedented religious freedom. We've enjoyed a church, uh, enjoyed a church that for quite a long period of time has driven society. Society has been driven by the church in America for a long time. And there have been a lot of neat perks that have come with that. For, for instance, our nonprofit status. Um, a great tax benefit that has helped the church immensely. There was a long period of time when Sundays were pretty much off limits to any other activity. So people could be free to, without hindrance, worship freely with a local congregation. Generally speaking, the church has been well thought of as a pillar of most American communities. We've enjoyed unprecedented freedom and unprecedented favor in our time. But recently we've seen the table starting to turn a bit, and I know we've all sensed it. It's a stressor for many of us. We're finding ourselves in the public eye in some not-so-good ways. Some of them, admittedly, are of our own doing, but our values are are starting to come under attack in many circles. Some of the benefits we've received have have begun to come into question. We've slipped out of favor with a large segment of the population. Things are changing all around us in this country. And folks, many of us are struggling with that. We're certainly not being oppressed to the degree that we see here. But like these early believers that Peter is writing to, we're starting to feel misunderstood. We're starting to feel pressed. We're starting to feel unwelcome even in our own home country. That's tough. That's troubling to us. It's surprising to us even because we're not used to this. This is not what we grew up with. This is not what we've understood America to be. But I've got news for you. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Because what's happening is we're actually being pushed back towards the natural state of the church. Christ spoke of it. If the world hates you, know that it it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as 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 its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word. That I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Later on, even in this letter, Peter speaks of it. In chapter 4, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We're not to be surprised by trials. We're not to be surprised by persecution. We're not even to seek to fight back against them. Instead, we're to rejoice in our trials. As in our trials, we are sharing the suffering of Christ. We are blessed in our trials because in them, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. And it's with that backdrop that Peter offers these early believers encouragement and offers us encouragement as well. And he does, does so by pointing us to where we are to take our joy from, where we are to take our security from, not in, in the praise of man, not, not in anything else that's going on in this world. We're to take our joy from our election. 
Our election as sons and daughters of God. Our election unto salvation. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So to a people who had certainly fallen out of favor with man, Peter reminds them of who they are in Christ. He reminds them of their election. He reminds them that favor from man means nothing. It is favor from God that we care about. He reminds them that God had called and caused them to be born again. In response to the temporary struggles they were having with man, he reminds them of the infinite and lasting gift of the new life they have in Christ the salvation they have received from him. We all love to feel loved, don't we? I do. I like it when people like me, when people love me. We all really just love to be liked. We want people to like us. There are probably at least a few of us in here who are willing to do just about anything to be liked. It's really hard when we, we know people don't really resonate with who we are and we, they don't like something about us. I've kind of gotten over that because people don't like that much about me usually. Beth is the reason people like me. Um, but there is, there's kind of a natural drive to be liked um, that we seem to have as humans. It's, it's why we tend to join together in clans. Why we want to be with, with other people like us from, with similar interests and similar personalities. People who we're, we're likely to have favor with. I'll tell you what, pastors are not immune either. I don't know if you know it or not, but your pastor probably really wants you to like him. I know I did as a pastor, and I know that's surprising. Um, but I, I always did as a pastor, especially since I was the kind of pastor who didn't really like people all that much. Um, I hesitated to make that joke because I wasn't sure how it would land. But generally, we want people to like us. And we're conditioned to that very early on in life. I mean, if you can think back, what, what was the most important thing to you when you started out in kindergarten or first grade? You wanted friends. You wanted friends. I know that may be harder to recollect than others, for some of us than others, but we wanted to be liked. We wanted friends. We wanted favor with some group that we could spend time with, play with, belong to. That, that desire to belong is something that's kind of ingrained in us very, very early on. But when we're called as followers of Christ, we're not to take our identity from that, from where we belong with people. Our identity, our identity is to be tied up, in, instead of being in, in, in the favor of man, it is to be tied up in the eternal gift of a new life that can only be received from one source. And that source isn't man, it is God. And as his elect, his children, we have that. We all have that gift. We have already received the only favor we need. Favor from God. And folks, that and all that comes with that is something that is eternal. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, listen to this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, 
and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The favor of man fades. It's temporal. And because we're called to a new and better life under God's direction, we're promised that that favor won't last. Because as we grow in Christ, as we become more and more like him, we're going to become that much different from the world. So the world isn't going to like us as much. We're different. We're countercultural. But all that comes through the unmerited, undeserved favor from, from our God and all that comes with being adopted as his sons and daughters is imperishable. It is undefiled or perfect and unfading. It is forever. It's forever. And because it's forever, because it's forever, and what we often tend to focus our attention on is not, we've got to kind of begin to recalibrate the lens here as we look at our status in this world, as we look at what our focus is to be. Recalibration is a necessary thing sometimes. I have, I have a limited knowledge of firearms. I'll tell you that right up front. Firearms and their usage. You may be surprised and maybe even find it humorous, but Beth is the one who is the gun person in our family. That, that really went over well when I was in Allegheny County, Virginia, in the hills there. They were really impressed with me. In fact, Beth is the gun person, and I'd really rather have nothing to do with them. I don't want to have anything to do with guns most of the time, so I'm not really even comfortable with them in my house. My father-in-law used to take me out target shooting when Beth and I first got married, and, and I usually injured myself, and I just was not comfortable around guns at all, at all. So there's a decent chance that this whole analogy I'm going to try to draw here is going to be wrong, so just bear with me. But Beth is a gun person, and I should have checked out this out with her beforehand. I just realized that. She's a gun person. She used to hunt, and, and she owns a few guns. But many rifles, to my knowledge, have scopes. Am I good so far? They have, yeah? All right. The scope helps you see at a distance. They help you to spot and aim at a target that's a great deal away. But every so often, you've got to recalibrate that scope so that you can shoot straight. Um, because it, it gets off kilter, and before you know it, you're shooting at a different target than what you're actually aiming at, and you hit something five feet off in the other direction, or probably worse. Um, and I apologize if I messed that up. But we have to recalibrate a scope with a gun. That's my limited understanding of scopes, if we want to be able to consistently continue to shoot straight. When we're called to this new life in Christ, we similarly have to be willing to recalibrate our focus, recalibrate what we focus on. When we were of the world, our focus was on any number of other things. It was on money. It was on whatever. Um, we, the favor of man. It was on people liking us. It was on all these other things. But when we, when we come to know Christ and as we grow in him, we are constantly recalibrating our focus from all those temporal things to the eternal, to the big target right in the middle. The eternal stuff that really, really matters. Because what we're looking for is not the praise of man. It's, it's, it can't be found in that. If it's in anything other than our salvation, our election, and our new life in Christ, we're shooting at the wrong target. Did I get that analogy okay? Was that, that work? All right, good. I'm getting some nods, so I must have not completely butchered it. We need to put those other things aside. And be encouraged by the recognition of our election of sons and daughters of God. That is huge. It's huge. 
That's encouragement number one from Peter. But that's not all he gives them. Because he even helps them to see the purpose behind their trials, behind some of the persecution and the struggles they're going through as he goes along. In verse 6 he continues, In this you rejoice, referencing what he just talked about in the last five verses, their salvation, etc., etc. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, they were going through trials. Yeah, it probably was hard. Much harder than maybe anything we've gone through in that similar fashion. Anything we're dealing with right now in our country. Harder than that. But there was a bigger prize in view. There's a bigger target they were shooting at. There's bigger game if we want to continue with the hunting thing. The trials that we may go through the hatred that may be heaped on us by men and women who just don't see what we see. All of this, all of it, it's all part of the refining process. Not only is it something we should expect, it's also something God uses to grow us, to prepare us, to test us. Peter uses the example of gold here. Gold is one of man's most prized objects, so that's why he kind of jumped there, I think. It's a precious metal. We use it for jewelry. We use it for decoration if we've got some money. We don't have that kind of money. We don't have gold decoration in our house. We even use it to back up our currency, I think. I'm not sure if we're still doing that for real anymore, but we say we're backing up our currency with it. But gold, like other precious metals, it has its, its impurities when it starts out. But those impurities are removed by a fiery process. It's placed in a pot or cauldron or, or, or a crucible. Crucibles of pot in which metals or other substances are heated to a very high temperature and, and even melted so that all the impurities can rise to the surface and so that those impurities can be sifted out. So what's left, what's left after the process of sifting is much more pure and much more strong. It's much better than the product that it was started with. Through our trials, through our struggles, we are similarly sifted. Peter's a guy who was sifted himself. If you turn back into the Gospels, you actually see a specific passage where Peter tells, Jesus tells Peter that, he, that Satan is asked to, asked to have him and he's going to sift him like wheat. If you look back into that in the later, later chapters um, of John, I think, there's a really seminal moment for Peter where that's happening. So Peter knows sifting like nobody else. When, that was the whole process he went through when he denied Jesus three times and that whole thing and everything that came with that. That right there, that was a strengthening process for Peter. God uses those things. He uses our trials. He uses even our persecution. The things that people are doing to us that we just hate and we just want to get rid of. He uses those things to grow us. He uses those things to strengthen us, to make us better tools for him. You may have heard the saying, whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger and that expression actually kind of works here. These early believers were going through a process of being sifted, being refined, being strengthened, even through those trials. So not only was this suffering expected because of the state of the world around them, but this suffering, their trials were actually being used of God to help to strengthen them. To help to strengthen their faith, Peter tells them. And with as precious as gold is, our faith is even more so. Even more so does it need to be strengthened and made better so that we can last and make it to the end of days. 
Our election as sons and daughters is even more so important than gold ever will be, than the most precious diamonds and rubies. God will, according to Edwin Bloom, as a result, set his stamp of approval on faith that has been tested and show this when Christ is revealed. Then the believer will openly share in the praise, glory, and honor of God in all its fullness. These trials are not only to be expected because of the state of the world, but they are also necessary so that our faith may become stronger, so that we are ready at the appointed time when Christ is revealed in all his fullness. Though you have not seen him, you will love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's where our eyes need to be fixed. That's the prize. That's what we're driving toward. So they've been encouraged by their election. And all that comes with that. They've been encouraged even to see purpose in their struggles. But there's one more piece of encouragement here in our passage that's this morning. And to me, it's, it's, it's one of the coolest things I, about our faith. I really always love talking about this. Because he, he, he encourages them by pointing them to ancient prophecy. Verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Those, those ancient prophets, they were not serving themselves, but were serving those in the future, those people Peter was speaking to. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What Peter's identifying to these believers is that they are part of something historic. They are part of something that is of old. They are part of something that God orchestrated long before they were ever thought of by their parents or their grandparents. Really, they're part of something that predates the creation of the world. A plan of God that predates the creation of the world. Peter paints a picture of the amazing nature of the one who had come as the savior of the world and paints an amazing picture of their salvation that that was the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. This was huge. This was huge. I've always liked history. I get excited about it. I think it's... I think the thing that I like about it is that it makes me feel like I'm something... I'm part of something bigger than myself. I think we all kind of like that feeling. At least I do. I always enjoyed sitting in U.S. history classes in middle and high school. It, it made me feel connected to the roots of this country. It made me feel connected to all our struggles and all our triumphs, everything that's kind of built America to where we are now. It made me feel part of it, part of this continuum. Again, part of something that was bigger than me. I still to this day read a lot of history and watch a lot of historical documentaries. Beth will tell you our Netflix feed is is often clogged up with historical documentaries, in fact. That's what I do a lot with my free time. I know that's not necessarily the coolest thing per se, but it's who I am. I really like history, and that's the reason. I get really excited about that idea. But when we look at this piece of the biblical narrative, what the author is doing is, is connecting us with a much bigger and far more important continuum 
far more important continuum. This continuum of faith that dates back to he and his readers, that dates further back than that even. It goes to the prophets. It dates back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the fathers of the faith, and really ultimately to before the creation of the world. It connects us to a plan. It makes us a part of that plan. This plan that God put in motion before everything. That's huge. We're part of that. We're beneficiaries of that. Folks, that really gives us a window into an amazing aspect of God's character. It's his sovereignty. When we're talking about the sovereignty of God, we're basically talking about the idea that all things are under God's rule and control and that nothing happens without his knowledge or even his direction. And so often when when life hits us, when we're going through something, especially when we're going through something tough, we wonder if God is even there, if he's even listening. We wonder if he has any idea what's going on in our lives or if he even cares. Sometimes we wonder if, if he has any ability to do anything about it. We ask these questions. I think we are all have probably asked those kind of questions ourselves at times. We wonder if he has any control over anything. And I think that to some degree that's kind of our natural reaction, especially when we don't understand ourselves what's going on. In a secularized society, we've been conditioned to think that way. We're very me-centric. We're just kind of focused on our little piece here. This is what's going on in my life. So... You know, I don't, we don't understand how it fits with what, what's bigger, what's going on around us. We wonder if he has any control over anything. We feel like things are spinning out of control. When we look at the state of our world, we often find ourselves wondering if God has any clue what's going on down here, and if, if so, what is he doing about it? But a passage like this, reminding us of the antiquity of the gospel message, reminding us of, of this plan that God put in motion before the creation of the world, that, that's, that's huge. That points us in a very important direction. It's a reminder that he maintains control over all things. And I can't think of a more relevant message really in any age for any number of situations. I don't know, I don't know all that you're going through as individuals. I don't probably even know because I'm not here all that often. I travel a lot for the denomination, so I'm not here all that often, so I don't probably even know what's going on fully with us all the time as a body. But when you look at this message given to us at the top of 1 Peter, no matter what the circumstances, you can remember that God had and still has a plan. A plan that began in ancient times, long before it ever actually came to be. This was a plan in place long before anyone could have ever began to think about you. God was working in your life before you existed. This plan that began before the creation of the universe, we're all a part of it. We're all a part of it. Whether we know it or not, whether we care or not, we're all a part of it. Folks, we are a part of a grand plan, a plan that predates us. It predates Peter. It predates everything we know except for God. So when we look at some of what we're facing as believers, when we look at the presidential election, when we look at the seeming mass hysteria all around us, we can first remember that God is in control. And not only that, we can know that we are the elect of that God. 
that God, that God who is in control of what's going on all around us, he has called us unto himself. It's amazing. He's not surprised by any of the seeming chaos around us, nor, 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 should, nor should we be. As he has told us what would come. So with that backdrop, we can fix our eyes on our, on our election, on our salvation, on the new life that comes with that. We are different. I don't know if you like that idea very much, but we are called to be different from society. We've been brought from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. And with that, we live a different life, a life that will not be understood by the world around us, those who are still spiritually dead. It won't be understood. But while that may cause us to fall out of favor with much of the world around us, maybe even much of our country in the direction we're going, that's okay. We have not fallen out of favor with the one who called us unto himself. Until, in fact, that same, that same God told us to expect it, and he told us that we would grow through it. He has called us unto himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are called out. So take joy in your salvation, in your election. Take joy even in your suffering. And take joy in knowing that you are part of something that predates the world around you. Something that will continue now and in the future. In the future when he comes to make all things new. He's preparing a place for us even now. A place that we will enjoy eternally long after the praise of man has faded. That wonderful encouragement is ours, even in troubled times, especially in troubled times. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have called us to yourself. We are so thankful for our election as your sons and daughters. We are so thankful for all that comes with that, our salvation, our inheritance, Lord the new life we have in you. We're just so thankful. Lord, we know that there may be trials ahead and we know that we may be falling out of favor more and more with, with, the, with the men and women around us. Lord, help us not to take, help us not to, to be disheartened by that. Help us to take heart in knowing that that's to be expected. We are different. We are called as your sons and daughters. We are called from death now unto life. We are different, Lord. You've called us to be different. So may we take joy in the knowledge of our salvation. May we take joy in the the knowledge that this, this plan of salvation is something that makes us part of a heritage that you, a plan that you plotted out before the world began. Lord, we are so thankful for that, Lord. Lead us now as we go out. Lead us to be, continue to be different, even if it causes us struggle.
We lift these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.